8. Nuffer steamboat soon after his return to America, in 1806. This boat was 130 feet long, 18 feet wide, with mast and sail, and had on each side a wheel 15 feet across. On the morning of the day in August, 1807, set for the trial of the Clermont as Fulton called his boat an expectant throng of curious onlookers gathered on the banks of the North, or Hudson, River, at New York. Everybody was looking for failure, for though Fitch's boats had made trips in the Delaware only some 20 years earlier, the fact did not seem to be generally known. People had all along spoken of Fulton as a half-crazy dreamer and had called his boat, Fulton's Folly. Of course, the thing will not move, said one scoffer, that any man with common sense well knows, another replied, and yet they all stood watching for Fulton's signal to start the boat. The signal is given. A slight tremor of motion and the boat is still. There, what did I say? Cried one. I told you so, exclaimed another. I knew the boat would not go, said yet another. But they spoke too soon, for after a little delay the wheels of the Clermont began to revolve, slowly and hesitatingly at first, but soon with more speed, and the boat steamed proudly off up the Hudson. As she moved forward, all along the river people who had come from far and near stood watching the strange sight. When boatmen and sailors on the Hudson heard the harsh clanking of machinery and saw the huge sparks and dense black smoke rising out of her funnel, they thought that the Clermont was a sea monster. In fact, they were so frightened that some of them went ashore, some jumped into the river to get away, and some fell on their knees in fear, believing that their last day had come. It is said that one old Dutchman exclaimed to his wife, I have seen the devil coming up the river on a raft. The men who were working the boat had no such foolish fears. They set themselves to their task and made the trip from New York to Albany, a distance of 150 miles. In 32 hours, success had at last come to the quiet, modest, persevering Fulton. After this trial trip the Clermont was used as a regular passenger boat between New York and Albany. The steamboat was Fulton's great gift to the world and his last work of public interest. He died in 1815. But the Clermont was only the beginning of steam-driven craft on the rivers and lakes of our country. Four years afterward 1811, the first steamboat west of the Allegheny Mountains began its route from Pittsburgh down the Ohio, and a few years later similar craft were in use on the Great Lakes, the National Road and the Erie Canal but while steamboats made the rivers and lakes easy routes for travel and traffic, something was needed to make journeys by land less difficult. To meet this need, new highways had to be supplied and this great work of building public roads was taken up by the United States government. Many roads were built, but the most important was the one known as the National Road. Illustration, from the painting by C. White Turner in the DeWitt Clinton High School, New York, the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825. It ran from Cumberland, on the Potomac, through Maryland and Pennsylvania to Wheeling, West Virginia, on the Ohio River. From there it was extended to Indiana and Illinois, ending at Vandalia which at that time was the capital of Illinois. It was 700 miles long, and cost $7 million. The smooth and solid roadway was 80 feet wide, it was paved with stone and covered with gravel. Transportation became not only much easier but also much cheaper. The road filled a long felt need and a flood of travel and traffic immediately swept over it. Illustration, from the painting by C. White Turner in the DeWitt Clinton High School, New York. The ceremony called, The Marriage of the Waters another kind of highway which proved to be of untold value to both the East and the West, was the canal, or artificial waterway connecting two bodies of water, 
the most important was the Erie Canal, connecting the Hudson River and Lake Erie, begun in 1817. This new idea received the same scornful attention from the unthinking as Fulton's Folly. By many it was called Clinton's Ditch, after Governor DeWitt Clinton, to whose foresight we are indebted for the building of this much-used waterway. The scoffers shook their heads and said, Clinton will bankrupt the state, the canal is a great extravagance, and so on. But he did not stop because of criticism, and in 1825 the canal was finished. The undertaking had been pushed through in eight years. It was a great triumph for Clinton and a proud day for the state. When the work was completed the news was signaled from Buffalo to New York in a novel way. As you know, there was neither telephone nor telegraph then, but at intervals of five miles all along the Ruth Cannon were stationed. When the report from the first cannon was heard, the second was fired, and thus the news went booming eastward till, in an hour and a half, it reached New York. Clinton himself journeyed to New York in the canal boat Seneca Chief. This was drawn by four gray horses, which went along the towpath beside the canal. As the boat passed quietly along, people thronged the banks to do honor to the occasion. When the Seneca chief reached New York City, Governor Clinton, standing on deck, lifted a gilded keg filled with water from Lake Erie and poured it into the harbor. As he did so, he prayed that the God of the heaven and the earth would smile upon the work just completed and make it full to the human race. Thus was dedicated this great waterway whose fullness has more than fulfilled the hope of its chief promoter. Trade between the East and the West began to grow rapidly. Vast quantities of manufactured goods were moved easily from the East to the West, and supplies of food were shipped in the opposite direction. Prices began to fall because the cost of carrying goods was so much less. It cost $10 before the canal was dug to carry a barrel of flour from Buffalo to Albany, now it costs 30 cents. The region through which the canal ran was at that time mostly wilderness, and for some years packets carrying passengers as well as freight were drawn through the canal by horses traveling the towpath along the bank. When traveling was so easy and safe, the number of people moving westward to this region grew larger rapidly. Land was in demand and became more valuable. Farm products sold at higher prices. Villages sprang up. Factories were built, and the older towns grew rapidly in size. The great cities of New York State and this is especially true of New York City owe much of their growth to the Erie Canal, the railroad the steamboat, the national highways, and the canals were all great aids to men in travel and in carrying goods. The next great improvement was the use of steam power to transport people and goods overland. It was brought about by the railroad and the locomotive. In this country, the first laying of rails to make a level surface for wheels to roll upon was at Quincy, Massachusetts. This railroad was three miles long, extending from the quarry to the seacoast. The cars were drawn by horses. Our first passenger railroad was begun in 1828. It was called the Baltimore and Ohio and was the beginning of the railroad as we know it today. But those early roads would seem very strange now. The rails were of wood, covered with a thin strip of iron to protect the wood from wear. Even as late as the Civil War rails of this kind were in use in some places. The first cross ties were of stone instead of wood, and the locomotives and cars of early days were very crude. In 1833, people who were coming from the West to attend President Jackson's second inauguration traveled part of the way by railroad. They came over the National Road as far as Frederick, Maryland, and there left it to enter a train of six cars, each accommodating 16 persons. The train was drawn by horses. In this manner they continued their journey to Baltimore. In the autumn of that year a railroad was opened between New York and Philadelphia, 
At first horses were used to draw the train, but by the end of the year locomotives, which ran at the rate of 15 miles an hour, were introduced. This was a tremendous stride in the progress of railroad traffic. Illustration, comparison of DeWitt Clinton, locomotive and train. The first train operated in New York, with a modern locomotive of the New York Central or R. To be sure, the locomotives were small, but two or more started off together, each drawing its own little train of cars. Behind the locomotive was a car which was a mere platform with a row of benches, seating perhaps 40 passengers, inside of an open railing, then followed four or five cars looking very much like stagecoaches, each having three compartments, with doors on each side. The last car was a high, open-railed van, in which the baggage of the whole train was heaped up and covered with oilcloth. How strange a train of this sort would look beside one of our modern express trains, with its huge engine, and its sleeping, dining, and parlor cars. You will be surprised that any objection was raised to the railroad. Its earliest use had been in England, and when there was talk of introducing it in this country some people said, if those who now travel by stage take the railroad coaches, then stage drivers will be thrown out of work. Little could they foresee what a huge army of men would find work on the modern railroad. In spite of all obstacles and objections, the railroads, once begun, grew rapidly in favor. In 1833 there were scarcely 380 miles of railroad in the United States, now there are more than 240,000 miles. Morse and the telegraph the next stride which progress made seemed even more wonderful. Having contrived an easier and a quicker way to move men and their belongings from one place to another, what should she do but whisper in the ear of a thinking man, you can make thought travel many times faster. The man whose inventive genius made it possible for men to flash their thoughts thousands of miles in a few seconds of time was Samuel Finley Brees Morse. He was born in 1791, in Charlestown, Massachusetts. His father was a learned minister, who was always thinking, always writing, always talking, always acting, and his mother was a woman of noble character, who inspired her son with lofty purpose. When he was seven he went to Andover, Massachusetts to school, and still later entered Phillips Academy in the same town. At 14 he entered Yale College, where from the first he was a good, faithful student. As his father was poor, Finley had to help himself along, and was able to do it by painting, on ivory, likenesses of his classmates and professors, for which he received from $1 to $5 each. In this way he made considerable money. At the end of his college course he made painting his chosen profession and went to London, where he studied for years under Benjamin West, though for some years he divided his time and effort between painting and invention. He at last decided to devote himself wholly to invention. This change in his life work was the outcome of an incident which took place on a second voyage home from Europe, where he had been spending another period in study. On the ocean steamer the conversation at dinner one day was about some experiments with electricity. One of the men present said that so far as had been learned from experiment electricity passes through any length of wire in a second of time. Then, said Morse, thought can be transmitted hundreds of miles in a moment by means of electricity, for, if electricity will go ten miles without stopping, I can make it go around the globe. When once he began to think about this great possibility, the thought held him in its grip. In fact, it shut out all others. Through busy days and sleepless nights he turned it over and over, and often, while engaged in other duties, 
He would snatch his notebook from his pocket in order to outline the new instrument he had in mind and jot down the signs he would use in sending messages. It was not long before he had worked out on paper the whole scheme of transmitting thought over long distances by means of electricity. And now began twelve toilsome years of struggle to plan and work out machinery for his invention. All these years he had to earn money for the support of his three motherless children. So he gave up to painting much time that he would otherwise have spent upon his invention. His progress, therefore, was slow and painful. But he pressed forward. He was not the kind of man to give up. In a room on the fifth floor of a building in New York City he twelled at his experiments day and night. With little food and that of the simplest kind, indeed so meager was his fare, mainly crackers and tea, that he bought provisions at night in order to keep his friends from finding out how great his need was, during this time of hardship all that kept starvation from his door was lessons in painting to a few pupils, on a certain occasion Morse said to one of them, who out him for a few months teaching, well, Strothers, my boy, how are we off for money, professor, said the young fellow, I am sorry to say I have been disappointed, but I expect the money next week. Next week, cried his needy teacher, I shall be dead by next week. Dead, sir, was the shocked response of Strothers. Yes, dead by starvation, was the emphatic answer. Would ten dollars be of any service? Asked the pupil. Now seeing that the situation was serious, ten dollars would save my life, was the reply of the poor man, who had been without food for twenty-four hours. You may be sure that Strothers promptly handed him the money, but in spite of heavy trials and many discouragements, he had by 1837 finished a machine which he exhibited in New York, although he did not secure a patent until 1840. Then followed a tedious effort to induce the government at Washington to vote money for his great enterprise. Finally, after much delay, the House of Representatives passed a bill appropriating $30,000 for a trial of the telegraph. As you may know, a bill cannot become a law unless the Senate also passes it. But the Senate did not seem friendly to this one. Many believe that the whole idea of the telegraph was rank folly. They thought of Morse and the telegraph very much as people had thought of Fulton and the steamboat, and made fun of him as a crazy brain fellow. Up to the evening of the last day of the session the bill had not been taken up by the Senate. Morse sat anxiously waiting in the Senate chamber until nearly midnight, when, believing there was no longer any hope, he left the room and went home with a heavy heart. Imagine his surprise the next morning, when a young woman, Miss Ellsworth, congratulated him at breakfast upon the passage of his bill. At first he could scarcely believe the good news, but when he found that she was telling him the truth his joy was unbounded, and he promised her that she should choose the first message. By the next year 1844 a telegraph line, extending from Baltimore to Washington, was ready for use. On the day appointed for trial Morse met a party of friends in the chambers of the Supreme Court at the Washington end of the line and, sitting at the instrument which he had himself placed for trial, the happy inventor sent the message selected by Miss Ellsworth, what hath God wrought. The telegraph was a great and brilliant achievement, and brought to its inventor well-earned fame. Now that success had come, honors were showered upon him by many countries, at the suggestion of the French Emperor. Representatives from many countries in Europe met in Paris to decide upon some suitable testimonial to Morse as one who had done so much for the world. These delegates voted him a sum amounting to $80,000 as a token of appreciation for his great invention. In 1870 to this noble inventor, at the ripe age of 81, breathed his last. 
the grief of the people all over the land was strong proof of the place he held in the hearts of his countrymen. Some things to think about 1. Tell all you can about John Fitch's steamboats. 2. Give examples which indicate young Fulton's inventive gifts. Imagine yourself on the banks of the North River on the day set for the trial of the Clermont, and tell what happened. 3. What and where was the National Road? 4. In what ways was the Erie Canal full to the people? 5. Describe the first railroads and the first trains. 6. Tell what you can about Morse's twelve toilsome years of struggle while he was working out his great invention. How is the telegraph full to men? 7. What do you admire about Morse? 8. Are you making frequent use of your map? Chapter XIV The Republic Grows Larger Sam Houston In a preceding chapter you learned how the great territories of Louisiana and Florida came to belong to America. We are now to learn of still other additions, namely, the great regions of Texas and California. The most prominent man in the events connected with our getting Texas was Sam Houston. He was born, of Irish descent, in 1793, in a farmhouse in Virginia. When he was 13 years old the family removed to a place in Tennessee, near the home of the Cherokee Indians. The boy received but little schooling out in that new country. In fact, he cared far less about school than he did for the active, free life of his Indian neighbors. So when his family decided to have him learn a trade he ran away from home and joined the Cherokees. There he made friends, and one of the chiefs adopted him as a son. We may think of him as enjoying the sports and games, the hunting and fishing, which took up so much of the time of the Indian boys. On returning to his home, at the age of 18, he went to school for a term at Marysville Academy. In the War of 1812 he became a soldier and served under Andrew Jackson in the campaign against the Creek Indians. In the Battle of Horseshoe Bend he fought with reckless bravery. During that fearful struggle he received a wound in the thigh. His commander, Jackson, then ordered him to stop fighting. But Houston refused to obey and was leading a desperate charge against the enemy when his right arm was shattered. It was a long time before he was well and strong again. But he had made a firm friend in Andrew Jackson. Later Houston studied law and began a successful practice. He became so popular in Tennessee that the people elected him to many positions of honor and trust, the last of which was that of governor. About that time he was married, but a few weeks later he and his wife separated. Then, suddenly and without giving any reason for his strange conduct, he left his home and his state and went far up the Arkansas River to the home of his early friends the Cherokee Indians. The Cherokees had been removed to that distant country, beyond the Mississippi, by the United States government. About a year later Houston, wearing the garb of his adopted tribe, went in company with some of them to Washington. His stated purpose was to secure a contract for furnishing rations to the Cherokees, but another purpose was in his mind. He had set his heart on winning Texas for the United States. Perhaps he talked over the scheme with his friend, President Jackson. However that may be, we know that some three years afterward Houston again left his Cherokee friends and went to Texas to live. His desire to secure this region for his country was as strong as ever. At that time Texas was a part of Mexico. Already before Houston went down to that faraway land many people from the United States had begun to settle there. At first they were welcomed, but when the Mexicans saw the Americans rapidly growing in numbers they began to oppress them. The Mexican government went so far as to require them to give up their private arms, which would leave them defenseless against the Indians as well as bad men. Then it passed a law which said, in effect, that no more settlers should come to Texas from the United States, so that the few thousand Americans could not be strengthened in numbers. 
Of course, the Texans were indignant, and they rebelled against Mexico, declaring Texas to be an independent republic. At the same time they elected Houston commander-in-chief of all the Texan troops. This began a bitter war. The Mexican dictator, Santa Ana, with an army four or five thousand strong, marched into Texas to force the people to submit to the government. The first important event of this struggle was the capture of the Alamo, an old Texan fortress at San Antonio. Although the garrison numbered only 140, they were men of reckless daring, without fear, and they determined to fight to the last. David Cerosi among these hardy fighters was David Crockett, a pioneer and adventurer who had led a wild, roving life. He was a famous hunter and marksman and, like some of our other frontiersmen, was never happier than when he was alone in the deep, dark forests. Born in eastern Tennessee, in 1786, he received no schooling, but he was a man of good understanding. His amusing stories and his skill with the rifle had made him many friends who chose him to represent their district in the Tennessee legislature and later in Congress. Like Sam Houston, he had served under Andrew Jackson in the war with the Creek Indians, and when the struggle with Mexico broke out he was one of the many brave backwoodsmen who left their homes and went down to help the Texans. After a long journey from Tennessee, in which more than once he came near being killed by the Indians or wild beasts, he at last reached the fortress of the Alamo. He knew he was taking great risks in joining the small garrison there, but that did not hold him back. In fact, he liked danger. The Mexican army, upon reaching San Antonio, began firing upon the Alamo. Their cannon riddled the fort, making wide breaches in the weak outer walls through which from every side thousands of Mexicans thronged into it. The Americans emptied their muskets and then fought with knives and revolvers. They fought with desperate bravery until only five of the soldiers were left. One of these was David Crockett. He had turned his musket about and was using it as a club in his desperate struggle with the scores of men who sought his life. There he stood, his back against the wall, with the bodies of the Mexicans he had slain lying in a semicircle about him. His foes dared not rush upon him, but some of them held him at bay with their lances, while others, having loaded their muskets, riddled his body with bullets. Thus fell brave David Crockett, a martyr to his country's cause. A few weeks after the tragedy of the Alamo, Santa Ana's army massacred a force of 500 Texans at Goliad. The outlook for the Texan cause was now dark enough, but Sam Houston, who commanded something like 700 Texans, would not give up. He retreated eastward for some 250 miles, but when he learned that Santa Ana had broken up his army into three divisions and was approaching with only about 1,600 men Houston halted his troops and waited for them to come up. On their approach he stood ready for attack in a well-chosen spot near the San Jacinto River, where he defeated Santa Ana and took him prisoner. The Texans now organized a separate government, and in the following autumn elected Houston as the first president of the Republic of Texas. He did all he could to bring about the annexation of Texas to the United States and at last succeeded, for Texas entered our Union in 1845. It was to be expected that the people of Mexico would not like this. They were very angry and the outcome was the Mexican War which lasted nearly two years. In 1846 Texas sent Houston to the United States Senate, where he served his state for 14 years. When the Civil War broke out he was governor of Texas and, although his state seceded, Houston remained firm for the Union. On his refusal to resign, he was forced to give up his office. He died in 1863.
John C. Fremont the Pathfinder still another man who acted as agent in this transfer of land from Mexico was John C. Fremont. He helped in securing California. He was born in Savannah, Georgia, in 1813. His father died when he was a young child, and his mother went to Charleston, South Carolina, to live, and there gave her son a good education. After graduating from Charleston College he was employed by the government as assistant engineer in making surveys for a railroad between Charleston and Cincinnati, and also in exploring the mountain passes between North Carolina and Tennessee. He enjoyed this work so much that he was eager to explore the regions of the far western part of our country, which were still largely unknown. Accordingly, he made several expeditions beyond the Rocky Mountains, three of which are of special importance in our story. His first expedition was made in 1842, when he was sent out by the War Department to explore the Rocky Mountains, especially the South Pass, which is in the state of Wyoming. He made his way up the Kansas River, crossed over to the Platte, which he ascended, and then pushed on to the South Pass. Four months after starting he had explored this pass and, with four of his men, had gone up to the top of Fremont's Peak, where he unfurled to the breeze the beautiful stars and stripes. The excellent report he made of the expedition was examined with much interest by men of science in our own country and in foreign lands. In this and also in his second expedition Fremont received much help from a follower, Kit Carson. Kit Carson was one of the famous scouts and hunters of the West, who felt smothered by the civilization of a town or city, and loved the free, roaming life of the woodsman. Before joining Fremont, Kit Carson had traveled over nearly all of the Rocky Mountain country. Up to 1834 he was a trapper, and had wandered back and forth among the mountains until they had become very familiar to him. During the next eight years, in which he served as hunter for Bent's Fort, on the Arkansas River, he learned to know the Great Plains. He was, therefore, very full to Fremont as a guide. He was also well acquainted with many Indian tribes. He knew their customs. He understood their methods of warfare, and was well liked by the Indians themselves. He spoke their chief languages as well as he did his mother tongue. After returning from his first expedition, Fremont made up his mind to explore the region between the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific. He succeeded in getting orders from the government to do this, and set out on his second expedition in May, 1843, with 39 men, Kit Carson again acting as guide. The party left the little town of Kansas City in May and, in September, after traveling for 1,700 miles, they reached a vast expanse of water which excited great interest. It was much larger than the whole state of Delaware, and its waters were salt. It was, therefore, given the name of Great Salt Lake. Passing on, Fremont reached the upper branch of the Columbia River, then pushing forward down the valley of this river. He went as far as Fort Vancouver, near its mouth, having reached the coast. He remained only a few days and then set out on his return November 10th. His plan was to make his way around the Great Basin, a vast, deep valley lying east of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, but it was not long before heavy snow on the mountains forced him to go down into this basin. He soon found that he was in a wild desert region in the depths of winter, facing death from cold and starvation. The situation was desperate. Fremont judged that they were about as far south as San Francisco Bay. If this was true, he knew that the distance to that place was only about 70 miles but to reach San Francisco Bay it was necessary to cross the mountains, and the Indians refused to act as guides, telling him that men could not possibly cross the steep, rugged heights in winter. This did not stop Fremont, 
he said, we'll go, guides or no guides, and go they did, it was a terrible journey, sometimes they came to places where the snow was 100 feet deep or more, but they pushed forward for nearly six weeks, finally, after suffering from intense cold and from lack of food, they made their way down the western side of the mountains, men and horses alike being in such a starved condition that they were almost walking skeletons, at last they reached Footer's Fort, now the city of Sacramento, where they enjoyed the hospitality of Captain Sutter. After remaining there for a short time, Fremont recrossed the mountains, 500 miles farther south, and continued to Utah Lake, which is 28 miles south of Great Salt Lake. He had traveled entirely around the Great Basin. From Utah Lake he hastened across the country to Washington, with the account of his journey and of the discoveries he had made. In 1845 Captain Fremont for he had now been promoted to the rank of captain by the government started out on his third expedition, with the purpose of exploring the Great Basin and then proceeding to the coast of what is now California and upward to Oregon. Having explored the basin, he was on his way to Oregon, when he learned that the Mexicans were plotting to kill all the Americans in the valley of the Sacramento River. He therefore turned back to Northern California and with a force made up in part of American settlers gathered from the country roundabout, he took possession of that region, marched as fast as possible to Monterey, and captured that place also. Within about two months he had conquered practically all of California for the United States. Fremont then made his home in California. On the 4th of the following July he was elected governor of the territory by the settlers then living there. Eleven years later the Republican Party of the United States nominated him for president but failed to elect him. He died in 1890. He has well been called the Pathfinder. Fremont's conquest of California was, in effect, a part of the Mexican War, which began in 1846. After nearly two years of fighting a treaty of peace was signed, by which Mexico ceded to the United States not only California but also much of the vast region now included in Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. This region, which is called the Mexican Session, contained 545,783 square miles, while Texas included 576,133 square miles. These two areas together were, like Louisiana, much larger than, 